You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the final event from Framing Aging, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. This hybrid conference took place on the 2nd and 3rd of December 2021 in UCD Humanities Institute and featured 15 speakers across seven panels. Framing Aging is supported by Welcome Trust. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from all our previous events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie. This episode features panel one, visibility slash invisibility. The speakers were David G. Tryansky from the City University of New York, who presented on visibility slash invisibility between narrative and image, and Julia Langbein from Trinity College Dublin, who presented on the image of old age and the problem of the figural. I really wish I could be there. Um, I was so disappointed when the situation turned the way it did, and um, but I'm really glad that the technology, um, imperfect as it may be, um, uh, allows me to attend and uh, to participate throughout the conference. So, um, greetings from the other side of the Atlantic. My talk um, describes two very different scholarly projects on aging, using two very different kinds of sources. Um, one is uh, a monograph under contract to Oxford University Press with a working title that is guaranteed not to be the definitive title of Entitlement and Complaint, Ending Careers and Reviewing Lives in Post-Revolutionary France. Um, we've come up with about 50 alternatives, uh, among them public service and retirement rights in post-revolutionary France. I won't bore you with all the other versions. Um, but that's one project, and it's based upon dossiers of magistrates seeking to retire in the first half of the 19th century. The dossiers combine proof of service with personal accounts of career, family life, and politics, as well as plans for retirement. While the monograph will include some illustrations, portraits, letters, bureaucratic forms, it is based essentially on textual sources. By contrast, the paper I gave online in January under the rubric of framing aging and will pursue further in a publishable version is based primarily on the images of aging individuals displayed outdoors in urban space in the early 21st century. That work is entitled JR's Wrinkles of the City Project, Representing Global Old Age, 2008-2015. to My eventual chapter in our collective work will be mostly about JR's representations of old age, but today I want to explore how the different kinds of sources I've been using give rise to different understandings of aging. An exploration, I hope, will strengthen my chapter, even as its focus is on the visual. My monograph falls within three historiographical contexts for the history of aging. A social history of the life course, old age and retirement, cultural history of representations of the aging self against the backdrop of an evolving national historical narrative, and a political history of changing regimes and anticipations of welfare state formulas for determining pension rights. 
So let me take these three in order. Historians have been exploring old age and aging for decades. While some of the early works privilege cultural representations, the most influential ones put methods and issues of social history at the center. They involved demographic study of changing percentages of age groups in a given population, family history studies of the shapes and extents of households, as well as responsibilities for care, labor history studies of work, exit, and dependency, and policy histories connecting labor union and government ideas um, to realities on the ground. Cultural history has seen a resurgence in the context of aging, moving from simple illustration to a focus on deeper meanings and constructions of the aging self, including the gendered aging self. Political history has tried to make sense of the interplay of state actors, generations, and interest groups. I find myself deploying each of these approaches in my monograph, but as we will see, they all privilege textual representations of late life in rendering aging visible or invisible. The book focuses on claims of right as careers in public service come to an end, on uses of the state by a range of individuals, on the development of bureaucracy and a kind of standardization of the life course, and on ways of representing the self, making it visible to government officials, but presumably also reproducing self-presentation that was simultaneously occurring in families and communities. And it begins with an archival collection in the Archive Nacional, including hundreds of dossiers created upon receipt of requests for pensions. Aging magistrates, and in some cases their widows, presented documentation of a career, complete with proof of years, months, and days served, all lined up on a printed form, letters from physicians and surgeons, and demands that took the form of life reviews that deployed a rhetoric of service, of need, and of right. Often, it was an emotional language, but over time, it grew more and more routine. A formula of 30 years of service and 60 years of age set the ground rules. But for those who become infirm before those conditions had been met, a case could still be made if the infirmity had been caused by the work. Thus, there emerged a discourse of the maladies of the sedentary professional life. The point here is that verbal self-portrait was presented and the life could be captured in written proof on a form and in a letter. The book explores the rhetorical strategies in the letters and even the look of the letters with a narrative being accompanied by a scrawled plea for help. And one concern in many such letters, as in parliamentary debates over pension policy, was what the visibility of the aging magistrate would do to the reputation of the individual and of the magistracy in general. The self-portrait sought honor and recompense. It represented a shift from favor to right and it warned against letting the public see an aged fonctionnaire or civil servant abandoned, in decline, and in need of charity. The book presents such aging individuals as pioneering a territory more and, people would more and more people would occupy in the 20th century and beyond. In the establishment of a working bureaucratic system, 
Postulants themselves made arguments that were rooted in legislation, notions of both implicit and explicit right, and a sense of their career's significance. They had also probably learned from a host of people who had justified themselves in their courtrooms. The back and forth between individual and ministry, and the evidence of colleagues' successes and failures, reached beyond particular cases to institutionalized norms. Moreover, they were presenting their lives as somehow exemplary, elite models for the rest of the population. Norms grew out of historical experience and thus memory. Individual and family memories juxtaposed old regime, revolution, and the regimes that follow. Memories were marshaled in order to argue for pension rights. Stories and rules developed in tandem with each other. Before time and service could alone justify our reward, it would eventually do just that, individuals presented memories of past regimes, of dramatic political events, of military service or occupation, of the deaths of children, and of the loss of property. Emotion played a role in that memory work and in the exercises in self-presentation that made their way to the ministry. Even as politicians debating policy discuss the shame that might redound to retired magistrates who were refused support, individuals made claims that also warned about potential shame. They did so in an emotional register that came easily to a great number of them. The more bureaucratic the system became, the less individuals would have to display such emotion. Whether through individual demands or collective debate, French magistrates and politicians were seeking ways of avoiding shame and maintaining professional and personal dignity. The history of retirement pensions in subsequent eras and other places involves some of the same principles. Document lives and policy arguments resulted in agreed-upon norms that try to lessen the importance of individual historical memories and emotions, or of outliving one's ability or desire to work. But at critical moments, such memories, whether of the Great Depression or the Second World War, played a role in jumpstarting the rational systems of the welfare state. In the story I've been telling, it was the revolutionary storm administrative efforts under Napoleon, and formal changes in the World War Restoration that contributed to a new logic of the life force and a sense of right or entitlement. For those interested in big historical change, the shift from favor to right would seem to be central. The story is obviously more complicated as postulants blended the language of favor and personal connection with the notion of right or entitlement. Even the idea of reward for service was open to modification in a society of citizens with growing expectations. Magistrates thought of themselves, at least partly, as still belonging to a corporate body, even as they adopted a broad language of human rights and put the emphasis as much on the physical and mental challenges of a medicalized late life as on the state's rewarding particular services. Postulants presented themselves both as heroes and victims. They bragged and they complained. In making retrospective sense of history and their role in it, they described the passage of time, the construction and succession of generations, and how a career might appear from one or another terminus. 
Sometimes they second-guessed earlier decisions. Often they justified having been political weather vanes. And always they were experimenting with strategies for making claims of right and social debt in a presentation of self. They were making language work for them. The final drafting of my book was undertaken as President Macron and the French public debated the pension system, which had developed both out of individual arrangements with the state and national ideas of the rights of citizens. It was completed in the shadow of COVID-19, whose disruptive and deadly impact also prompted debates over the relationship between state and society, individual reflections about life and death, and historians' debate over the proper historical analogies. 1930s, 14th century, French Revolution, 1918, World War I, and so forth, for understanding how we passed from one period to another. In an era of dramatic change, the succession of periods matters, but individual and collective lives have a way of connecting them, and in advanced age, making sense of them retrospectively. My book provides numerous examples of people who found themselves in a position to recall their lives for government officials and anyone else who might listen. Graphic illustrations for the book tend to be little more than illustrative. I have no real analysis of portraits of aging magistrates as the determination of pension rights were rooted in paperwork. So when I speak of visibility, I speak of individuals figuring out how to make themselves heard and seen with sometimes heroic, sometimes pathetic intent of work, revolutionary and post-revolutionary politics, family life, illness, and disability. And what I try to identify is the rhetorical strategies and keywords used by aging magistrates and their widows in creating verbal portraits. What a change to be looking at photographs, picture books, and videos. JR's Wrinkles of the City project makes visible the aged and their surroundings. And while my monograph involves the juxtaposition of individual lives and political change, this new project juxtaposes faces, memories, and public space itself undergoing rapid destruction, renewal, and gentrification. We ask, who is this? And the aging individual tells us. Subjects recount their lives, not for a government bureaucrat, but for a museum-going, picture-book-reading, internet-navigating public. As I put it in my presentation in January, JR's work forced an examination of aging faces and the identities they represent. We are invited to gaze at wrinkles themselves and appreciate individual elders. We're told that JR himself was very close to his grandmother's. But we were also encouraged to view those faces as representing a time, a place, and a history. As in some of his other projects, most notably work produced in a public housing project undergoing demolition, he uses his characters to mark a moment of dramatic change in the urban landscape. His aged characters have a sense of past and present at a critical moment. So in the portraits, the films, and the book, we confront individuals who are witnessing the world being transformed around them. He speaks of the walls themselves as also having wrinkles. So these are some of the books. This is on um, Havana, this on Shanghai, this on Los Angeles. 
And then as we scroll down, you can see these portraits um, on walls uh, in neighborhoods that are undergoing this kind of transition. So here, Havana, Shanghai, Los Angeles, there are a number of other cities as well, but I'll just scroll down. Here we have Berlin, and I'm gonna switch to his own website where he has the project. And you can click on individual projects, Istanbul, Berlin, Shanghai, and you'll get a sense of these photographs. Some of you will remember from when I gave that last talk. Okay, um, so I mentioned he speaks of the walls themselves having wrinkles. And he works in the stories of his grandmothers born in 1915 and 1923. They, the grandmothers, evoke decolonization, war, labor, and exile. Similarly, in depicting older people he had just encountered and whose portraits he was pasting on city walls, he said, I wanted to confront the facades with the people, the collective history with the individual's narrative. Wrinkles on the walls of Cartagena, Spain, or Havana, or Berlin, or Los Angeles, allowed a juxtaposition of individual memories and historical transitions, whether the Spanish Civil War, the Cuban Revolution, the Cold War, or moments of urban renewal. And those images, whether stills on the wall, illustrations in books, or moving images in videos presented in museums or online, try to relate the visibility of the aged face and the legibility of the urban landscape. The films sometimes narr narrate what's going on in the environment, but usually report the thoughts of the old people themselves. That's clearly more than a passerby looking up at a larger-than-life portrait can, can access. Is individual subjects looking at the camera, speak of their wrinkles, and describe what it's like to grow old in a place experiencing rapid change. As part of their self-presentation, they talk about working lives, family lives, and what their own aging teaches them. We can compare this to the kind of self-presentation going on in my magistrate's letters. The magistrates had a very precise goal in mind. They wanted a pension and some sort of honorary status, even as they were constructing a narrative. I wonder if JR's subjects had any such goal. I suppose they were using their portraits, their wrinkles, to alert the public to the value of their later life, the memories they still cherish, and their desire to remain visible. How should we contextualize the project? We should consider the ways in which old people have been represented in the arts. Often they've been standards for moral qualities, sometimes representing the decrepit bodies to sustain some more youthful soul, sometimes being tied to a desire to hold on to life, a representation of greed and vanity, and sometimes embodying wisdom. In this project, we're invited to recognize the wisdom of old age and the beauty of the wrinkled face in the midst of large-scale and economic forces that threaten their world. And as happened in some of JR's Bonilla images, the faces were pasted on the walls that were soon to be demolished. For a time, at least, the aged loom over the everyday, an aged eye overseeing a soccer game, or a wrinkled face representing a decrepit neighborhood that itself is being encroached upon by construction. A project like JR's points out particular ways of growing old in different parts of the world, but it also suggests that aging is something that ties people together. Maybe that's where the visibility comes in. Wrinkles of the City points out both similarities and differences among elders across the globe. We can go from one city to another, focus on wrinkles, and overlook differences, 
where we can view them as speaking from very different and precise historical, geographic, and personal contexts. And we ought to recognize that J.R.'s elders are overwhelmingly working class. Each story of the 20th century is different. Each neighborhood seems to be experiencing its own form of social life, neglect, or gentrification. But all permitted appreciation of non-elite bodily aging, often an active and assertive old age, sometimes the nostalgia of a resigned one. And, and all places place great emphasis on the role of memory, its simultaneously private and public nature. Writing this piece in time of COVID-19, I'm very aware of the indoors and the outdoors, and I'm struck by the importance of the outdoors for JR's aged subjects. We do glimpse of interiors, but the emphasis is on the aged outdoors, their portraits pasted on exterior walls. I couldn't help thinking that we often expect to see elders indoors, in spaces they themselves have created, or in institutions that may or may not allow individual adaptation of their surroundings. In other words, they've grown less visible to anyone who hasn't made a special trip to see them. JR's pasted images will not last as the walls behind them and even entire neighborhoods disappear. And when they think of the subjects themselves with their long historical memories reaching their own ends, but for a time they're still visible. One final point. JR's work, like so much photography, focuses on one moment. Other artists have tried to trace aging individuals over time. Consider projects of photographing the same family members annually over the course of a decade, of decades. They include St. Nelson's Family Project and Nicholas Nixon's Brown Sisters. Or consider Rick Schatzberg's The Boys, which depicts a circle of childhood friends in late middle age, juxtaposing youthful snapshots with recently staged portraits. Those efforts to depict aging in a longitudinal fashion may have another purpose in mind. They may allow for reflections on self and most evidently ideas of decline, wrinkles combined with surgical scars. JR's project requires us to listen to recorded voices or to read text in order to appreciate the passage of time. Those features permit a certain visibility to extend across the life course, but the literal visibility of what appears on the wall exists in the moment, and I suppose makes the viewer ponder what old age now represents, a kind of evanescence that can only be made lasting in further reproductions. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Uh, we are going to go straight on to the next paper, Julia Langbein's paper. Okay, so hi, it's so nice to see everyone in person. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk. This is a bit of a weird um, paper in the sense that it's kind of um, maybe polemic or kind of speculative. It's it's unlike the kind of like nerdy image digging I usually do. Um, and it, I might be very wrong, but if I am, then it's interesting to know how and why and where I'm wrong. So, <laughs> um, right, this is what we're here for. Um, so first, I, I, like, uh, I, I've answered, I wanted to just address these two questions that um, we put to everyone of what is the value of interdisciplinarity in your work and has the interdisciplinary contact of framing aging prompted changes in your thinking or not, which is a question that I don't know if people will answer in their talks or you know, discuss more casually, but I am very interested in it. Um, and for me, interdisciplinarity, um, you know, is a very happy, clappy idea. 
like some kind of ropes course where you go and expose yourself to new things and you go back home and you've had a productive workout, but it, it's all business as usual. Um, and I actually think that there can be downsides that are worth considering to interdisciplinarity and including kind of disciplinary homelessness or institutional homelessness. And I want, I'm not sure, I feel like I might be becoming homeless. Um, and, and it's thrilling, it's great, it's, um, but it's also, it's also a little bit scary. So, um, for example, um, this, Anne and I have talked about doing a Welcome Trust um, application and for a project on the visibility of old age. Let's say we take on PhD students, you know, what departments do they end up in? If I'm, if I'm training PhD students who are, you know, histor art historians of the visibility of old age, um, right? Do they end up, uh, are they just very social, social historians of art? What, you know, or are they actually more attractive in a world where these disciplinary boundaries are dissolving? Um, you know, it, it's not a bad bet, but it's a bet. Um, so the book that I am writing and want uh, to focus on uh, more is a book called Aging in the Age of Modernism, 1850 to 1914, um, which is now a very inter deeply interdisciplinary project, you know, and particularly in involves the work of sociologists whom I had not engaged with at all previously. Um, and that's been very fruitful for me. Something like Susan Picard's age war discourse um, gives me a framework to discuss certain historical agonisms that, you know, between generations that, that I don't have to build from scratch, and I, and I like that. And I wonder whether, ultimately, I'm writing a book that is um, not, um, yeah, that, that is going to be, that I would find strange to see reviewed in the pages of art history or something like that. Um, and that's good. It's fun. It's interesting. I'm talking to more people. Um, but, it, yeah, it also seems like a risk. So, anyway. Um, I, I, I wanted to, so... Literary gerontology and others, you know, working here with literary texts, there's, you know, it's obvious to me why the turn in cultural gerontology kind of started with literature, um, because it's able to produce critical open reflection um, and its access of interiority, or maybe better to say its construction of interiority is so valuable. Um, so I think it's very important that the literary studies I'm not addressing today, I'm not talking about it at, at, at all, because as a textual medium, I find that literary, you know, gerontological or, or age-themed um, studies that use literary texts are not over-determined by the image of the body um, that I'm talking about today. Uh, so I just wanted to like kind of set that aside for the moment as a kind of counter um, position to what I'm talking about today. So today um, I... So the, so the other, the interdisciplinary contact of framing aging has also helped me to see where my particular training has value. It's shown me the value of art history, not as an institution, but as a set of tools, as an intellectual history that has developed sophisticated ways of making meaning out of images distinct from other discourses. So the knowledge locked into the visual or produced by the visual is its own knowledge. It is not a decorative robe around written you know, documentary or other discursive histories. Um, and that's incredibly important for the formation of stereotype, um, and, you know, for images with, with real power to other, and so on. So today I want to expand on a few aspects of the talk I gave in January. And that talk asked the question, are projects that aim to generate positive images of old age doomed from the start? Um, right, this is one, of, one such image I remember um, I attended um, after, or soon after one of our first Framing Aging conferences, an online conference about promoting positive images of aging, you know, this kind of thing. 
And I asked, is the literal figural, figural photographic paradigm infected with a kind of exploitative or negative gaze? Is there a kind of photographic gaze that we can't get around, even when you're using it progressively or um, even in, in your in sociological you know, methodology or whatever? Is, is, is there something about it that's very dangerous? Um, in that talk, I looked back at Nadar's photo portrait session with Chevrol from 1886, this widely studied and well-known moment um, known as the kind of the first photographic interview, but hardly considered as a moment in the visual culture of old age. Um, so I looked at these images as both explicit homage, but also as exoticizing. And in the chapter or perhaps article that I'll work, out, work up from this, um, I'm relating these images much more specifically to ethnographic photography um, from the 19th century. So it's representative of a new stage in photography's claims to truth value in the media as a kind of direct access um, to people. Um, but ultimately this image was also fully commercializing. It pretended to be casual and intimate. It was in fact highly staged and an attempt to market a new kind of film. So for me this was and remains an important you know, view of the historical dimension of the representation of, of old age. An origin story for a toxic relationship between media imagery and bodily aging. I drew a line justified by photography's expansion and naturalization as an objective medium between that moment in the late 19th century and the kind of negative iconography of old age that you know circulates on the internet, and I always go back to Tom Scharf's wonderful Twitter. Um, so kind of infinite authorless, um, this whole clickbaiting environment of the internet is uh, obviously a major problem for, for people committed to fighting age of stereotypes. So this talk that I gave in January, I think conflated a few things looking back. I cited the problem of the figural and the photographic all balled up together, but it strikes me since that the photographic and the figural are two different problems. The figural pre-exists the photographic, but historically the photography exacerbated it. And today I'm focusing on the figural. First of all, what is a figural image or figural art? Simply one that depicts faces or bodies over and against figurative, meaning not abstract. Um, so if you look at you know, cultural studies research into age, um, old age visibility, you'll see a nearly exclusive focus on images of older people. Um, so, I mean, this is just a list from, uh, from Wendy and Julia's book, but you know, studies of popular media, you know, Dolan and Tinknell, 2012, advertisements, Lee et al., 2007, magazines, et cetera, et cetera, um, film, family photographs, um, um, uh, like healthcare uh, imagery, et cetera. So there's, there's this whole world of um, social and cultural investigation into visual images of old people, right? So, so many of these are, are they're, they're photographic images, health promotion, social media, images of the body, of the face and body of the old subject. If you look into the history of the representation of old age, you will find similarly a focus on images of older people. The figural, should I move this up? We'll go back to this. Um, so uh, we could point to David's you know, watershed study of the 18th century, um, but also you know, a, a number of scholars, if you look at the Pat Thane history of old age, it goes um, you know, every era by era, historical, historical epic by epic, you know, tracing um, the representation of old people in various media. Social historians have rightly found it productive 
to investigate images of older people as repositories of contemporary values and attitudes to old age. This makes sense. And now you can add me to the list. So for David's multi-volume history of old age, I did a chapter on artistic representations of old age for the 19th century. And as I was writing it, I became very aware of how a certain pre-existing relation to a concept of old age was shaping my encounter with the visual, and how an idea of old age and old bodies, two, two different things, were, were being elided. Let me be more specific. In that chapter, I described the way that the development of the wood engraved press in France and Britain in the 30s through the 50s, when it suddenly made images available to a lower income public, drew figural prototypes from the most conservative places, old master paintings, biblical, mythological tropes. So here's an example from uh, um, 1854, from a wood engraved magazine, um, a story, I finally found a story about a kind of contemporary old man made destitute by political corruption, illustrated with an image that I pointed out essentially popped in a, a contemporary aging individual to an old master depiction of Jesus. Um, the image certainly tells us about attitudes to aging individuals, including a certain resistance to representing you know, real suffering or vulnerability. Why does this have to be, um, why does this have to take up these old tropes um, from, you know, from the Bible or from mythology? But to find these examples, I flipped through years of illustrated journals. This is what I do, <laughs> my research, I sit there and I read through like 19th century newspapers day by day. Um, and in my mind, I had a schema, right? Um, I had a certain set of criteria in mind. I was looking for wrinkles. I was looking for bent backs and bald heads. A discursive schema for old person pre-existed in my mind, and I looked for images to match it. This is me being a good historian, right? This is, this is not... But I started to kind of wonder about the primacy of the discursive over the visual in this uh, exercise. So in the case of a Daumier caricature um, I, that I discussed, it's, it's even clearer how the figural image chases a pre-existing definition. I went to a Daumier database and searched among his 4,000 lithographs for vieillard, old man. This makes sense, of course it does. Age is a bodily process, of course we should find its representation in the visual. But the more I think about the figural, not as an obvious given in the representation of old age, but as a limit, as a problem, the more it strikes me that the artists that have interested us in the course of framing aging are those that work against the figural. In our framing aging web, uh, webinars, the open body versus the closed body emerged as an important concept. It's also one of the framing concepts in the volume. Artists and theorists concerned with the open body in old age seem to want to deny the uh, viewer a figural subject. Sadly, Linda Short can't be here, but she sent me some of her images and we had a brief exchange about them. And um, she was going to discuss this image from Herman, I think this is from Mein Malatin. Um, so she was uh, planning on discussing Kinder's notion of this kind of internal cinema, um, builder im Kopf, a way of re-experiencing his memories. What interests me for our purposes today is the way that Kinder breaks and disperses the figural among other genres, notably landscape. This seems to me like a meditation on the smallness and inadequacy, the limits of the figural. So, you know, kinder slumped, evacuated, looking at a desktop computer, which, like, is there a crappier object um, versus the compelling rush of a relation to space? 
So to re represent old age as relentlessly figural is to sign with a closed body. I think even when those figures are disrupted or are, you know, this is, I, I don't, want to, don't want to generalize, but I think the predominance of the figural um, is sort of sides with a closed body. To make the body a coherent object for visual consumption, a traditional and well-behaved well object. Similarly, we could point to JR's photography, um, about which I was originally quite skeptical, um, because look, it's photographic and it's you know, aggressively figural. But I came to appreciate JR's Wrinkles of the City because, in point of fact, it is not photography. It is installation. It, there are a whole bunch of processes at play here. Um, it's photograph, photographs that have been blown up. On what? Are they on canvas? Are they on paper? I don't know. But there's a whole material side to this. They are as much landscape as figure. That's what's so, I think, effective about them and critical about them, is that they are built environment. Especially the way they're experienced in situ, and as um, David mentioned, the, the inclusion of voice and text and so on, um, adds, an, adds further dimension to the way an individual is being appealed to. So again, of course, aging is a bodily process. We're going to picture it via the body, and that bodily reality and its physiological decline will find their way into images. But the fact that the figure currently overdetermines the way scholars and I think citizens of a contemporary image culture at large um, imagine the relation between old age um, and visibility. Sorry, that fact currently overdetermines, etc. So um, I wanted to turn to a text. This is this is the part of my <laughs> this is the part where I kind of I hope this isn't being recorded, but I know deep down that it is. Um, but I want to turn to, <laughs> what's that? Exciting. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, so how to see a work of art in total darkness by Darby English is a text that I have been thinking about in relation to this problem. How to see a work of art in total darkness. Um, Darby English, he's an art historian. And you know, I recognize the dangers of comparison with race. I think we have to do this very gingerly. Um, but at the same time, I can't get over the fact that race can be defined as a bodily physiological property. And like aging, its life in images shares a fetishization with the skin. Um, one could imagine that race would demand figural representation. Um, it obtains in and on bodies. And yet we, we're generations into thinking about how Race constitutes a range of signs and relations. You know, the history of, of race imposed structures of racial binaries, shape visual cultures in ways that are evident way beyond depictions of bodies, right? We know this, we're comfortable with this. Same with, um, you know, uh, feminist theory or queer theory. They've taught us to look at, um, look far outside of the narrow um, subjects that. Uh, uh, depictions of, of women, for example, right? We, we can use feminist theory to look at pictures of landscape and uh, uh, pictures of the environment, et cetera. Um, and I wonder, I'm not trying to make a theory out of, out of age, um, but I wonder why we, why there is this hewing so tightly to the figural. So, One of Darby's, Darby English's analyses takes up Kara Walker's installations, arguing that they should not be understood as, so Kara Walker, I, don't, I should have an image here, but the, she does the silhouettes, cut out silhouettes, um, that I can, I'll show you guys later. Um, 
But these installations of, um, they're like very stark black and white um, silhouettes of figures taken from kind of uh, caricaturally racist kind of plantation imagery and pastes them on walls. Um, and so he, one of his analyses takes up Kara Walker's installations, arguing they should not be understood as mere figural representations, but as a form of scenography in which multiple and shifting encounters can be had. The most obvious application of English's thinking to the representation of older people is actually in his warnings about asking images to represent race, or in the analogy here, the race of their makers, or here, age. So, for example, doing surveys of work by older people in order to draw universal conclusions about late style or late work, that kind of thing. That's you know, incredibly reductive. Um, but further, English's point is that to look at work by black artists as, quote, black art, this pre-existing thing, is to, and to look at it as representative of a certain c cultural consensus, is to avoid any critical relation with the work itself, to bypass the work of thinking, and to impose free prefabricated concepts onto the experience of a work of art that is always more complex than those concepts. Now, he's writing very specifically about race in America in the post-war period through the 1990s, and he's also not talking about visual culture at large. He's talking about advanced, refined, postmodern artworks. But what remains useful for me is the way he complicates the possibilities for interacting with, quote, black art. He doesn't say these works can't have meaning for or about race, only that you have to remain open to many more vectors of possibility rather than entering the field looking for a representation of black art or black culture that you'll, you'll stop yourself from seeing what could actually be there. So the idea of this prefabricated concept is one that he expands with recourse to William James that experience is a flux and concepts interfere with that flux. They stop it dead. And I wonder whether the figural image of the old body is a concept that interferes with flux. A prefabricated concept that stops real critical counters, encounters with age and aging in visual culture. Rob's talk, Rob of Framing Aging, <laughs> talk and, and paper for the, for the volume, is relevant here. He describes looking at images that limb the figural but are not given to being seen as aged bodies. And actually in his paper, he's dealing with an even less figural, um, in his, the version that he's doing up for the, for the book, he's dealing with an even less figural artist, the sculptor and ceramicist um, Vander Beugel, who is, you know, does these installations in space, which manifest aspects of uh, DNA code um, and other kind of digital and um, you know, uh, like pharmacological representations of the body. So you know, what Rob's interested in is the flux and the contingency of the encounter with the art objects as an important corrective to contemporary mental schema of the biomedical aging body. His thinking reminds us that the relational, another important framing aging concept, is a value or an experience that is heightened when images and objects resist the figural. When, for example, landscape, spatial relation, the sharing of a room, basic materiality become a focus. At the end of my uh, original talk, I conjured the possibility of this. Sorry, I don't know why I can't get a good reproduction of the most famous Impressionist painting of all time. <laughs> but, 
Um, this is Monet's impression sunrise from 1874. And I conjured the possibility of this as an image of old age, as a kind of thought exercise. Um, and it strikes me more and more as an important one because of a burgeoning scientific understanding of old age um, in, in the 1880s as a loosening of boundaries around visual data. This, I argued, came to be seen by a specific group of people as a representation of aging vision. This was not an image of an old person. It was not an image by an old person. This image was, and again, one of the most famous images in the history of art, it's on you know, how many fridge magnets, is for me such a worthwhile reminder of the possibilities of images outside the figural and of, of, ha of having the, the courage to, well not courage, courage is definitely not the word, but I don't know, risking taking the time to try to find To, to try to uh, yeah to try to find some kind of mind images that don't seem like they'll give anything to you, um, in thinking about aging bodies and and old age as a social and cultural experience. So th you know this was only an image of old age for a specific group of people, for post-impressionists interpreting this work later. Um, so it's an important image to think about um, um, in terms of one that's embedded in social relations. You can't interpret this as an image of old age unless you're thinking about it as um, a token uh, between two groups of people. It's not just objectively a picture of old age. It's not that easy. It's a picture of old age perception for some at a specific time in moment, in a specific moment in time, conditioned by a under, specific understanding of the aging body. Finding, yeah, so finding a moment in the history of old age where history obtains in a landscape forces us to think about that viewer, about reception and relation in a way that we don't necessarily push ourselves to do for the figural, I think. Um, so, for example, this is a Roman copy of a Greek, Greek statue of an old fisherman from the third century BC. In, in, in Pat Thane's History of Old Age volume, there's a chapter on old age and antiquity with a lot of these fabulous statues of older bodies. Again, this is great. This is interesting. This tells us a lot. I'm not saying we shouldn't look at this. But it is, it's interesting to me how this figure is so easy to relate to as an image of old age. It's, it's so commonplace, so obvious a representation of old age that we don't have to reconstitute for whom it meant what. It fits our mental schema for an old body, frail, holding a stick. We feel we know what we're looking at. So I don't want to exaggerate here. I, start, I look at figural images in my book. Um, I, my, the book. My first book is about caricature, which is maybe why I'm so um, hung up on the figural, because caricature you know, is, is a figural art, is like the, the exemplum of a figural art. Um, and I appreciate and enjoy the analyses of figural images on the part of a range of scholars. But you know, can we find cultural, social data about aging in a wider range of images and objects? It's harder. It might be more, to my mind, it's more art historical in that you can't just feed in definitions of old age from outside, from outside discourses. 
but it never, you know, never killed anyone to be more historical. And it may result in scholarship that tends more carefully to the relational and the vulnerable that fights stereotype more effectively than just throwing more figural uh, depictions, you know, into this arena. Um, and it, you know, might find ideas in the making. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.